And once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter, well, 18. 18. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are studying the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And I say we're in the finish line in the home stretch, but that could take a while. It's quite a home stretch. It's a lot there. But um, in our study, we, in John's Gospel, we find ourselves this morning looking at and finishing the final stage of Jesus' civil trials. We have said Jesus endured two, two trials the morning of his crucifixion, the first being a religious trial and the second a tr- civil trial. Uh, the first trial took place before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high council. The second one before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. As we have pointed out, each trial had three phases to it. Now, in Jesus' civil trial, he first stood before Pilate, then Herod, and finally before Pilate once again. And that's where we really pick up our study this morning. Now, I'm going to have you just stay in John 18, and I want to just read from Luke because this is what happened right after he was returned from Herod. Herod gave him back to Pilate, Jesus. Uh, So then Luke 23 verses 13 to 15, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things uh, of which uh, you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. I sent all of you to Herod, Jesus, and all you accusers. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now, at this point, and we're reviewing a little bit because you can't just jump in. i got to review a little bit. At this point, Pilate tries to end this charade. He knows the Jewish leadership leadership, uh, is seeking to railroad an innocent man. He knows that. He's not a fool. He was a pagan, but he was no dummy. Okay? And so... He wants to put an end to this charade. He wants to really let Jesus go free because he knows he's innocent. And so he does so by putting into practice his annual goodwill gesture towards the Jewish population living in and around the city of Jerusalem. And that was to release a Jewish prisoner every year at Passover time. Verse 39, John 18. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, as we've already pointed out, Pilate again knew Jesus was innocent, wanted to let him go. So he chose the most hardcore wicked criminal he had in his jail, Barabbas. We're told he was a robber, but other gospels say he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. It's a bad dude, okay? So Pilate figures, I'm going to get the worst guy I got in my jail, stand him next to Jesus, and put him both in front of the people. And ask them, which one do you want? Now, he figures that there's no way they're going to take Barabbas over the one they call their king. He's the king of the Jews, right? I mean, they got to take Jesus over Barabbas. It's a no-brainer. And then I'm going to be off the hook because I don't want to really put an innocent man to death. He had a conscience. Maybe not a big conscience, but he had somewhat of a conscience, right? So he figured that's how it was going to play out. It didn't work out that way. When he presented the choice, verse 40 tells us, they said, we don't want this man. We want Barabbas. So then Pilate thought, well, maybe if I have Jesus scourged, that would satiate the Jews' lust for blood, and they would finally agree that I could let him, Jesus, go free. And so chapter 19, verse 1, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. As we talked about last time, scourging was one of the most barbaric practices ever developed. It was so brutal that the Roman government forbid its own citizens from being scourged, and eventually they outlawed the whole deal altogether. It was just that brutal, that brutal. Again, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and that the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him because of envy. Matthew tells us that. It was because of envy they delivered him to Pilate. They envied his ministry. People loved him. And they couldn't handle the fact that somebody else had more power, it seemed, more notoriety than these so-called religious men. And so Pilate thought, well, 
I know it's because of envy they've delivered him up to me. Uh, I know they hate him. So maybe if I scourge Jesus, it will satisfy, again, their bloodlust and allow me to finally let the so-called prophet from Nazareth go free. I'm not saying Pilate believed he was a, a Jewish prophet, but that's what he knew the word on the street was, that this was a Jewish prophet, and so on. So Pilate said, look, I'm going to just, you know, go out here and have this man scourged, and maybe then I could let him go free. Again, that's not how it played out, because Pilate underestimated the hatred of the crowd toward Jesus, which has always amazed me. I get the hatred of the, of the chief priests, Pharisees, scribes. I get that. These were religious guys who were used to having all the attention. Rabbi, rabbi, my great one, my great one. Sit here in the front of the synagogue. Sit here at the head table during the feast. Jesus said, you guys love that. They love the recognition of men, right? I get their hatred for Jesus. I don't get the crowd's hatred. Now, these, some of these people, no doubt, were those that he had ministered to over the last three and a half years. How many of them had he blessed with a healing or, or something else? in the way of a, of a good word that helped them in their life to walk with God or something, right? It amazes me how quickly the crowd turned against him. It just goes to show that don't ever play to the fickle crowd because the crowd is indeed fickle. You always be a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. Paul said, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. So we, we have to understand that, right? Um, there's been many a celebrity that said something on social media after saying all the right things for years that everybody on the left wants to hear. They say one thing that was outside the bounds of what the left holds sacred, and everyone attacks, everyone cancels, because you cannot please the crowd. Maybe for a time, but not for very long. And so... The robe they put on him, many believe, was nothing more than a military robe, just like our military. You have, they have their everyday clothes, and then they have their dress clothes when they have a special, a special event, right? And so the Roman military was the was same thing. They had their, their workday uniforms, but if there was a, a parade for the emperor in town, of course, they would dress up in the, their finest. This was probably one of the um, robes that they wore for such an occasion, purple, uh, which spoke of royalty because you were honoring the Caesar, okay? And so they grabbed one of these off the shelf, whatever they, you know, and throw it around Jesus' shoulders because they wanted to mock him as the king of the Jews. That was the, t the, the claim. He is the king of the Jews. The Roman soldiers picked up on that and said, oh, we're going to have some fun with this. So verse 3. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, all mockery, of course, and they struck him with their hands. The verb tenses in the Greek are important because in the Greek, the verb, uh, the Greek text, uh, verse 3 indicates that the soldiers repeatedly uh, came to him, mocked him, and beat him with their hands. There was a game they played, a brutal game. When a, when a man looked like he was going to be, uh, or what, when he was uh, condemned to be crucified, he was fair game. He was going to die anyway, so Rome didn't care what, how you treated him. So they had this vicious game they played. They would uh, have a prisoner tied up, right? And uh, they would, all, all the Roman soldiers, maybe, I don't know, four or five of them that were around at that, would show the prisoner their fists, put a blindfold or a bag over their head, and one of them would punch him as hard as they could. They took the blindfold off. If he was still conscious, the game was, now tell us who hit you. And if he didn't guess right, blindfold came on again, and they, well, somebody hit him again. They did this until he was almost dead. I mean, he was so brutalized that he could, I mean, it just was, uh, it just they, they practically killed, beat him to a pulp, okay? Um, so that's the game they played with our Savior. And I bring all this out not to shock and to horrify, but to humble we ought to be humbled. Those beatings were my beatings. He was bruised for my iniquities. He was punished for my sins. The chastisement that I might have peace with God was laid on him. By his stripes I, I was healed. That was my beating and your beating. And it ought to humble us that God so loved us that he came down and he took the beating. He took the scourging. He went to the cross all because of his great love wherewith he loved us. We ought to be humbled by that. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you 
that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I believe, and I have no way to prove this, but I believe what Pilate was saying when he said, Behold the man, I'll paraphrase, look at this man. Hasn't he suffered enough? I mean, come on, enough is enough. Let me let him go now. You've, you've got your blood. Let me let him go. Let's end it now. That's what I believe was being said. Behold the man, verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify like Blood in the water to a group of sharks, right? They weren't satiated at all by uh, the, the scourging Jesus endured. It just ramped up their lust for more blood. So crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Now, guys, this is the third time Pilate announced, I find no fault in him. At this point, the crowd could have shot back, well, then why did you have him scourged? I mean, that proves you find some guilt in him. Because you don't scourge an innocent man. So why did you have him scourged if you don't think... If you think he's innocent, right? You have to understand, Pilate was a true politician. Probably had been one all of his life. And as a true politician, his words and his deeds didn't always come together. I mean, often they would tell you what you wanted to hear and did something completely different, right? We have experienced that in our culture. Um, but one commentator, I think, put a, put a good finger on it. He said, and I quote, he, Pilate, was a weak-willed man who, like many politicians, hoped to find a happy compromise that would please everybody. The Chinese teacher Confucius defined cowardice as to know what is right and not do it, end quote. Now, guys, I want you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. I want to show you how Matthew records the scene. Uh, they both record the same scene, but they give different details. And that's why we've been, we've been jumping around to the various Gospels at times, because I want you to get a full picture of what happened that, that morning. So Matthew 27, verse, 30, uh, verse 21, The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Guys, the big mistake that Pilate made, the mistake that's going to torture him for all, for all eternity, was allowing the crowd to make the decision for him as to what he was going to do with Jesus. I've said it before, let me say it again. Make no mistake about it. Jesus wasn't on trial that day in Pilate's court. Pilate was. In that regard, Pilate becomes, I think he's being held up by the Holy Spirit as an example for the whole human race, for the whole human race. Pilate becomes an example of the place every human being finds him or herself in when presented with the gospel. What am I going to do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's the question of the ages. There is no more important question a person can ask and answer in their own life. What am I going to do with Jesus who is called Christ? Am I going to receive him or am I going to reject him? And if I believe in him, am I going to commit my heart to him? Because there's a lot of folks that have head knowledge. They've gone to church all their lives, gone to Awana's Bible camp, whatever. They know who Jesus is. I had that knowledge as a Roman Catholic before I got I knew who Jesus was. I believed he was the Son of God, Savior of the world, who died for my sins, rose again the third day. I had all the head knowledge, but I had not committed my life to him in the sense that I received him into my heart as my Lord and Savior. There's a lot of folks who flat out answer that question or they try to defer or get out of it. I don't care. Jesus doesn't, I don't think about Jesus. What do I care? What am I going to do? I'm not going to do anything with Jesus. I'm neutral. I'm an atheist. Well, we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Someday everyone's going to have to answer that question, and they're going to see him face to face, and they're going to know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God who died for their sins, but they rejected him. So his death will do them no good. I don't want that to happen to anybody here this morning or watching online. We need to all answer the question, 
what am I going to do with Jesus was called Christ? Or now that I believe in him, what am I do? Am I living for him at all? Is my faith head knowledge or is it a heart commitment based on my love for what he has done for me? That each person has to decide for themselves what they're going to do with Jesus. Don't One thing you must never do, the one thing you a person must never do is let the crowd make the decision for you. Too much is at stake. Remember what Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a what? A snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. One author, I think, put it well. He said, and I quote, the fear of man results in yielding to human pressure to commit evil or to refrain from doing what is right. How many have gone to hell because they were afraid of what their friends would say if they trusted Christ, end quote. I, I don't know the number. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be a lot. There's a lot of folks that did believe who Jesus was, but they were afraid to make a real commitment to him because of what their friends would think, especially in the days of social media, right, where every thought is put on into cyberspace like it's that important. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. If you, if, you do, if you do this, I'm not putting you down, but what do I care what a person has for dinner, for, for uh, you know, for dessert after the click. What do I care? That's why I'm not on social media. I could care less what you had for dessert. God bless you. Did you enjoy it? Wonderful. It's just not something that, you know, is a piece of information I find that interesting, okay, or helpful, uh, especially not helpful. And I want to run out and get that, and I don't need it, okay? But, um, but, but something we brought up last time that we ran out of time before we could deal with it fully and again i apologize for kind of you know kind of um going back a little bit and uh trying to get everybody up to speed right um but upon hearing the accusations against jesus and questioning him personally again Pilate knew jesus was innocent was being railroaded by the jewish leadership now guys that in and of itself was not so unusual People are falsely accused all the time by people that have it in for them, whatever the reason. I mean, Pilate knew that. He was a seasoned judge and politician. Nothing really out of the ordinary there. However, what was odd was that this man being falsely accused, listen, wasn't trying to defend himself. And that struck Pilate as extremely odd, to say the least. I mean, Pilate heard many a man accused of a crime or crimes over the years loudly defending himself or and declaring his innocence or at very least begging for mercy. Yet when Pilate tried to get Jesus to say something in his own defense, he was silent. And that caused Pilate to marvel greatly. Matthew records this in chapter 27. The, his, Jesus accuses are standing there firing one accusation after another of Jesus. He just standing there silent. And at one point, Pilate says, do you hear how many accusations they make against you? Do you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus was silent. So it says, Pilate marveled greatly. I looked the, the word up in the Greek. It means to be astonished beyond <laughs> comprehension. This was totally different than anything Pilate had ever experienced with anyone that was accused. And remember, Jesus was accused of a capital crime. This wasn't just a ticket for jaywalking, maybe. I don't know. No, this was a guy's life on the line. And Pilate couldn't believe he wasn't defending himself. Now, keep that in mind, because I'm trying to paint in your thinking a picture of what was going on that morning, especially in the mind of Pilate. Again, we know why Jesus was silent that morning. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, right? Isaiah 53, verse 7, as a, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, Jesus was silent because he had come to die, right? I mean, that was his mission. He said earlier in John 12, for this cause, I came into the world. So we know why he was silent. He wasn't trying to defend himself because he came to die for you and I. He came to die for us. But to Pilate, this was extremely odd behavior to the point, and I'm not overselling this, I'll show you what I mean in a second, this was extremely odd behavior to the point of becoming or being somewhat disturbing. This started to, to kind of weigh on Pilate. This wasn't normal. Please 
understand it. I mean, here a seasoned judge politician who had seen maybe thousands of prisoners over the years. He was governor. And here stands before him a man that was so unused. Not only was he not afraid, there's no fear in his face, I'm convinced. I'm convinced Jesus had a look of love on his face. Though I think he loved Pilate. I, I think that, well, I know Pilate had an opportunity to accept Christ that, that morning. It didn't work out that way, but I think that Jesus loved him. I think that's obvious. And so there was no fear in his face. There was no anger. Good even with these guys. No. It was a complete, he, he, he completely submitted to the whole process. Didn't argue, didn't fight, didn't declare his own innocence. Just kind of a majestic silence that really started to get on Pilate. Not on his nerves in a negative way, but started to make him kind of, he was disturbed. Okay. On top of that, Matthew records something that no other gospel writer records. We talked about this last week. Something that which no doubt, listen, added to Pilate's dissolving composure. And his composure was dissolving. He started out court that morning, I'm sure, as the consummate professional. But as things wore on with this case, um, he started to become more and more unsteady. I think fear began to grip his heart. Taking into consideration, the Romans were very superstitious people. you got to understand that. That's part of the background. The Romans were very superstitious people. So here's Pilate confronting this guy, and he doesn't really know who he is, but he's totally different, right? And right in the middle of this trial, Pilate's wife, Procula, or Procula, whatever you, however you pronounce it, uh, sends him a message. Now, Matthew records this in Matthew 27, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just, the Greek word means righteous, implying innocence, of course, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, guys, whether or not this dream came from the Holy Spirit, we're not told. But we do know one thing for sure. The Romans believed that the gods used dream to communicate to mortals. They believed that. That was part, part of their faith system. Okay? And the fact that Pilate's own wife had a dream warning him not to pass judgment on this just man. If it was me, I would have sent a message back, Honey, can you give me a little more? Why should I not, you know, what are you telling me? See, <laughs> I believe that his wife's message, warning him not to pass judgment on Jesus, so unnerved Pilate. Why did it really unnerve him? Because in his mind, again, thinking like Pilate was thinking, in his mind, it could have been a dream from one of the gods saying, don't mess with my kid. This is my son. You better not mess with him. You better not sentence him to death because now you're going to incur my wrath. This is what, no doubt, Pilate as a pagan, it was running through his mind at least. I tell in first service when Paul and, and Barnabas, I forgot it was Lystra. I forgot where it was. But remember, um, you know, God used Paul to heal somebody. And so right away, they assumed the gods had come down. Uh, the big guy is Zeus. The little guy is... Uh, as Hermes, Mercury, he's the spokesman, right? And they somebody ran down to the temple of Zeus or you know, said, hey, your God's in town. Come on down and sacrifice. So next thing you know, this, this, this priest is dragging this animal down the street to sacrifice to uh, you know, Barnabas and Paul, who they thought was Zeus and Hermes, right? And Paul's horrified. said, don't do that. We're just men. You know, worship God. But the idea was that city, uh, Greek... Uh, mythology is that at one point uh, a couple of the gods had come down taken human form and they were abused by the people they weren't treated kindly they weren't treated with respect in some way and so when they got back to their place where they lived they sent all kinds of plagues and different things on the people of that city and so that was their part of their cultural you know mythology and so they you know said i'm not going to make that mistake again and so they just assumed see, this was how they were wired though 
they believed that often the uh, the the gods came down uh, in incognito, uh, taking the form of you know men and women to uh, you know to um, engage the people of the earth. That that was how they were thinking, right? And so, this is what Pilate was uh, no doubt thinking, and why his wife's note so unnerved him. And it could be the main reason why he shifted into high gear after this point, uh, trying to let Jesus go. Because he was afraid he was actually sitting in judgment on one of the sons of the gods. But Pilate, if he was nervous or full of anxiety at this point, he's about to shift into full-blown panic. And here's where we kind of pick it up uh, this morning, um, where, you know, Pilate said, look, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him, verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was, listen, the more afraid. So it's, he was already scared, and now he becomes even more afraid and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? And folks, he wasn't looking for Nazareth or Bethlehem as an answer. Like, where are you? What planet are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And guys, this is where Pilate starts to really become unglued, as he is now wondering if he is sitting in judgment on a son of one of the gods. And again, the, the Greeks and Romans did believe that the gods took human form. And they came down to interact with mortal men and women on the earth. And, uh, well, we could say that his fears were actually somewhat justified. Um, he was sitting in judgment on not one of the sons of the gods, but on the only begotten son of the one and only true and living God. So he, he was, you know, uh, that was true in his mind. Verse 10, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Because Jesus was silent. Do you know? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? I love this. Jesus answered, you could have no... And I, I don't at all think that Jesus answered in a snide way or, a, or a, just a sarcastic way. I think he was completely in control, completely calm. He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. The devil can't do anything to us except God give him permission. We learned that from the book of Job, chapter 1. Satan had to get permission from God to touch Job. You say, well, why would God do that? To teach us, to toughen us up, to draw us closer. There's a lot of reasons. Without persecution, without uh, the devil's attacks, we would become very soft, spiritually speaking. It's the warfare. Even God said to Israel, I'm not going to give you the land all at one time with one giant battle. But little by little, as you fight the people of Canaan, the, the armies of Canaan, I'm going to give you the victory. He went on to say, because warfare is good for you. It keeps you on your knees. It keeps you close to me. If there was no spiritual warfare, we would be very soft Christians. We are anyways, because a lot of Christians in America believe that they're spiritual warfare, but they don't really apply it to their daily lives. And, and it's because of that, they, even though it's real and they believe it's real, they don't really think it affects them too much. And that's a problem. That's a big mistake. So Jesus said, you could have no power against me at all if it was not given to you from above, from my Father. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who would that be? Not Judas. I'm convinced it was not Judas. It was Caiaphas. Caiaphas. Why Caiaphas? Because Caiaphas was the high priest. And the high priest was the top religious guy of the entire nation. Of all people, he had to know the Jewish scriptures. He knew what they said about coming of Messiah. He knew that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Um, 
that he was going to have miraculous abilities, that he would be able to heal the sick, cast out demons, and make the lame walk and the dumb speak, and, and so on and so forth. Everything Jesus did. Remember at one point John the Baptist even started to uh, double think, are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? He's in prison now and sends word to Jesus. And you tell John, Jesus said, the, um, the lame walk, the mute speak, um, the dead are raised. These are all the works of the Messiah. And, and tell John that no one who believes in me will ever be put to shame. That's the thing. Caiaphas had... That's why the Bible says with knowledge comes responsibility and the one who has more knowledge will incur the more strict judgment if they don't receive Christ as their Savior. Uh, when you're talking about hell, there's degrees of, degrees of punishment in hell. And the hottest fires of hell are reserved for those who knew the truth but rejected it as opposed to those who never really had the Bible. They're still accountable because the creation declares the glory of God. You look up into the heavens and know there's a creator. And if you want to know him, crowd in your heart, I don't know who you are, but I want to know you. And God will get them the information. He will always give people the gospel who want to know uh, and be saved. Anyone who wants to know him, he will never turn away. That's our God. He promises us that, right? But so, you know, the one who has delivered me to you has the greater sin. Not that Pilate was innocent, but Caiaphas was going to be held even more accountable. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought all the more to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you cannot, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, guys, when the Jews said this, Pilate knew it was over. It was over. They had him over a barrel. They pressured Pilate to execute Jesus or else they would turn him into Caesar as one who was aiding and abetting a man who claimed to be the king of the Jews when the, king, the Jews were under Caesar's authority. He was their king. For anyone to claim he was the Jews' king, it was in defiance of Caesar. And so Pilate was aiding and abetting. You don't, you don't put him to death. You're aiding and abetting this treason, this is treason, Pilate, that you're engaged in. If you don't put this man to death, he's claiming to be king of the Jews. Caesar is our king. We have no king but Caesar. Remember they said that? Interesting. With your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. One commentator rightly observed, and I quote, as Pilate sits down in his judgment seat to make a decision, the irony is that he himself is being judged on the basis of his response to Jesus Christ. So, too, some of you will sit back and say, oh, I'm going to analyze, scrutinize, and evaluate Jesus Christ. In reality, however, you're not judging him, but your reaction to him is judging you because he is the king of kings, regardless of what you decide. He's going to have his way whether you choose to get on board or not. Thus, the judgment seat you're occupying right now is that of your own judgment. And how you respond to him, Jesus, will determine whether you go to heaven or spend eternity in hell, end quote. Now, guys, I have to spend just a couple of minutes on verse 14, which says, Now it was preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. Preparation day was always the day before the Sabbath, because on the Sabbath you could do no work. So you had to prepare all your meals ahead of time. You had to light all your oil-burning lamps before the sun went down, uh, which became the Sabbath day because you couldn't kindle a fire. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You could eat. So everything had to be prepared beforehand. That's why, uh, because every Saturday was a Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, every Friday was called the day of preparation. And it's because of that that many people, when they read this, that uh, it was the preparation day of the Sabbath of the Passover, I should say, uh, that means Jesus was crucified on Friday. I see where they get that. Because, again, every Friday was the preparation day because every Saturday in Jewish culture was the Sabbath. I get that. However, there were seven other special Sabbaths that were sprinkled throughout the Jewish religious year. 
These were called high Sabbaths, and the day before every one of them, listen, was a day of preparation. Because again, you couldn't do work, any work on a Sabbath, weekly, or these high Sabbaths. Now guys, Jesus was crucified on Passover. The Gospels make that very clear. Paul affirms that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. I believe that the Passover that year was on Thursday. I don't believe it was on Friday. And I'll tell you why when we get to the resurrection. I'll give you a little hint. There is no way you can get three days and three nights in the grave with a Friday crucifixion. There is just no way. I mean, there, and I'll show you why I say that. Because I did the math, folks, and there's no way. Some even say it was a Wednesday. I, I, I believe it was Thursday. The Passover that year fell on a Thursday. Now, guys, that would mean if Jesus was crucified on Thursday, Passover, that would mean the next day, Friday, would be the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you go back to Leviticus 23, and don't do it now, please, the God says the feast of Passover was to fall on the 14th day of Nisan. On the 15th day, running for seven consecutive days, was to be the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Now, that meant if, again, Thursday, Passover, Jesus was crucified. If Friday began, then, the feast of unleavened bread, that began with a high Sabbath, which meant Passover became the day of preparation. That was, that was a, easy because they had already prepared all the food for the Passover meal. All they had to do is have leftovers. Okay. Uh, but it meant that every Passover became a day of preparation because the next day was always a high Sabbath where the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. Now, I know that it um, is confusing because it says in verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover. Sounds like the next day was Passover, but it wasn't because the night before, Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover in the upper room, right? Passover started at sundown. That's the Jewish calendar. Uh, the day didn't start until sundown. So sundown on Wednesday became Passover, Wednesday night. They ate the Passover meal. The next day, Thursday, all day until sundown was the Passover. So Jesus was crucified on that day. But why does it sound like the, it was the preparation day of the Passover? As we said a few weeks ago, again, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits were three feast days that were lumped together. Uh, they all happened within an eight-day consecutive eight-day period, right? Because you had Passover, 14th, Unleavened Bread starting on the 15th, running for a week, and there was a Sunday during that week that became the Feast of First Fruits. We've talked about this. So the Jewish people would typically just take the whole eight days and call it Passover. You know, like we would call uh, December Christmas time. We know it's Christmas is December 25th. They knew the Passover was the 14th of Nisan. It's just that they lumped the whole thing together. And so when it says it was the preparation day of the Passover, again, preparation day being the Passover itself, the next day started the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a high Sabbath. So I hope I've confused you enough. Um, when John says in verse 14 that it was about the sixth hour, um, scholars believe John was using Roman time. In, a Ro in Roman time, that would have been 6 a.m., three hours from the crucifixion. Because Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified the third hour, which is no doubt the Jewish reckoning of time. The third hour would have been 9 a.m. So we're now three hours from the cross. A lot had to be accomplished yet, um, and, and, and Jesus had to walk up you know, the, um, uh, the road to Calvary. Uh, we call that, again, um, Via, Del Via, Via Del Rosa. Thank you. Very steep road, uh, and, uh, you know, and he fell many times, and we're going to see how they um, grabbed a guy to help him carry his cross. And there's quite a story behind that, which we'll look at next time but um, so um, he was three hours at this point 6 a.m. from the cross which would have been 9 a.m. he would have been hanging on the cross John 19 verse 14 once again now it was the preparation of the Passover Passover week and about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews 
Pilate did, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Now, guys, to, to fully understand what's going on here, you got to know the backstory. You got to know the backstory. To fully understand why Pilate seemed to have caved to the bloodthirsty mob so quickly. And I know he put up a little bit of a fight, but he, he, he was a Roman uh, leader, a governor. And, and they didn't take kindly to being told what to do. So when the people kept demanding that Pilate have him crucified, if Pilate wanted to, uh, he could have said, hey, knock it off. I'm the governor. You're not. I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm not going to let you dictate the situation. But he gives in to this bloodthirsty crowd. Why? Well, again, there's a little backstory or background that's necessary. I'll set it up by, by quoting one historian who had this to say about Pilate. He said, Pontius Pilate, and that is the correct way to pronounce his name, by the way. Pontius is not right. I don't, you want to call him Pontius? That's up to you. I'm just telling you, the right way to pronounce his name is Pontius Pilate. All right? So if you're ever on some kind of a game show where that's a trivia question, you, can, you, can, you know the answer now. Pontius Pilate had been appointed the fifth governor of Judea by Emperor Tiberius in the year AD 26 and held that position for about 10 years. Both the Gospels and the extra-biblical sources portray him as proud, arrogant, and cynical, but also as weak and vacillating. His tenure as governor was marked by insensitivity and brutality, end quote. All right. Pilate seemed to have had an I'm-going-to-show-them-who's-boss kind of leadership style uh, in, you know, in his relationship to the Jewish people he had been placed over as governor. He had totally underestimated their resolve and tenacity. The Jewish people are very uh, resourceful and they're very tenacious. Uh, they're just an incredible people. And what happened was by this time, Pilate had backed himself into a corner with the Jewish population living there in Jerusalem and around the suburbs, uh, and even with the, the emperor himself. You say, well, what happened? Well, Pilate had been in power about five or six years um, at this point in John's Gospel, chapters 18 and 19. And he hadn't always exercised the best judgment in dealing with the Jewish people. First of all, it seems like he started his career there in Jerusalem uh, by deliberately offending the Jewish Like he just wanted to show them who was boss. So what did he do? He had his army marching into Jerusalem carrying ensigns. What was that? Flags. Flags. But these flags um, carried the likeness of Caesar. Now, to the Jewish people, uh, that likeness was idolatry because the Romans worshipped the Caesars as gods. That's why one of them took the name Augustus, August I. That was a, was a title of a god, right? Now, most of the emperors knew they weren't gods, but they played it up. There's a few that really were whack jobs and believed they were gods, but Nero probably fit into that category. Um, but so Pilate, going to show him who's boss, he has his soldiers march into town carrying these flags with the image of Caesar, which the Jews immediately saw because they worshipped Caesar as a form of idolatry. God said in the, in the law, he, he said, look, you're not to make the likeness of any gods that are in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, because it's idolatry. So that's what they're picking up on. And previous governors had carefully avoided displaying the ensigns uh, in public, especially in the holy city of Jerusalem where they knew the Jewish population was deeply religious and would take great offense at these things, why do you, why do you want to purposely upset them? You're trying to keep peace in the region, right? And so a delegation of Jewish leaders got together, and they went to Pilate, and they didn't ask him. They demanded that he remove the ensigns immediately. They ignored them for a while, but they kept it up. They kept bad. One thing about the Jews, they're tenacious. They kept badgering him, badgering him. We take him down, take him down. We don't want him, take him down. They're idolatry. To the point where he finally had his soldiers round up these people into an amphitheater and told them if they didn't immediately cease and desist, knock it off and leave, he was going to have his soldiers cut their heads off. Well, they weren't afraid at all. What they did was they, they exposed their necks, fell on the ground, and dared Pilate to make good in his threat. They had him. He knew that. 
They called his bluff and Pilate was, was had. He decided, excuse me, he knew that he had been sent to the region to keep peace and not to stir up a riot, which a massacre of these people would no doubt have caused. And so he gave in to their demand. That was strike one. Strike two came not long after when Pilate decided to build an aqueduct that would bring fresh water from 50 miles away into the city of Jerusalem. That was, would have been a good public works project. The Jews did need more fresh water coming into the city, and it would have been helpful to the Jewish population. The problem was Pilate did not have the funds to finance this project. So once again, exercising bad judgment, he forcibly took money out of the Jewish temple, okay, um, which in the mind of the Jews was dedicated to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and could only be used for the worship of him. Well, you can imagine the Jews revolted, and so to counter this uprising, Pilate took a little more, um, you know, he, he played it down. He didn't, you know, have the armies all dressed up like soldiers. What he did was he had a whole bunch of his soldiers dressed up in, like, street clothes, not wearing, you know, look, blending in, and went into among the mob that was, you know, protesting, Jewish mob. And at one point, they, he or someone else gave a signal, and they pulled, they had the sword, uh, daggers in the clubs underneath their cloaks. At one point, they went in the crowd, signal was given, they pulled out these things, beat and killed a whole bunch of these Jewish uh, protesters. Um, it didn't come out immediately. He was behind it, but the Jews know. And, uh, and eventually, uh, uh, it got back to the leaders in Rome, what had happened, right? That was strike two. Strike three, his third offense against the Jewish people, almost got him ex uh, executed by the emperor. And... Uh, for this one, he had special shields made for his soldiers stationed at the fortress of Antonia, which was a fortress right there at the Temple Mount. So he had a group of soldiers assigned to the Temple Mount area, right? And um, in a blatantly transparent attempt to flatter the emperor, Tiberius Caesar, Pilate ordered the likeness of Tiberius uh, engraved on these new shields. Again, the, all these shields made, but he decided to put Tiberius's likeness on the shields to flatter the emperor, right? Well, as Pilate should have learned already, the Jews saw these signs, again, as a form of idolatry. And this time, the Jewish leaders bypassed Pilate altogether and went straight to Caesar to file a formal complaint against Pilate. The emperor didn't care about empty flattery. What he did care about was for Pilate to keep peace in the region and not do anything to foment a revolution. Tiberius demanded the shields be removed immediately. And he warned Pilate if there was one more uprising among the Jewish population under his control, it would mean his head. Now, guys, all of that becomes the background for what we're reading in John's Gospel. You can see when it came to the trial of Jesus that Pilate was caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent and wanted to let him go. But the people kept demanding that he give the order to have Jesus crucified. Only John records what finally forced Pilate to give in to their demands. Again, John 19, verse 12, the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate heard that, he felt he had no other choice than to put Jesus to death. To do the right thing, to let Jesus, an innocent man, go free, well, that would have caused a riot, and Pilate could not afford that, not if he wanted, not only to save his job, but to save his neck. And so we read in Matthew's Gospel, if you're not there, you can turn to verse, to chapter 27. So we read in Matthew 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult, a riot was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. The problem was that Pilate couldn't wash away the guilt and sin of crucifying an innocent man by simply washing his hands in a basin of water. Any more than I as a Roman Catholic at one time could wipe away my sins by having ashes smeared in my forehead every Ash Wednesday once a year. Or by going to church and lighting a candle 
There are things that will not wash away our sins. How ironic for Pilate, the only thing that could wash away his sin was the very blood he had ordered spilled. As Robert Lowry's beautiful hymn declares, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now you might be wondering, and we're done, but let me just give you this. You might be wondering, whatever happened to Pontius Pilate? Well, historians are, are not completely sure. There's different variations of how he came to his end. I'll give you one of the more common ones. Some sources say that he fell out of favor with Emperor Caligula, who came after Tiberius, and was exiled to Gaul, France, where he eventually committed suicide. Many in the early church attribute Pilate's misfortune, and a lot of people trace the fact that it seemed like right after this trial of Jesus, his life took a nosedive. Pretty dramatic nosedive. And many in the early church say it all started when he condemned Jesus to death and that it was a judgment of God upon his life. I mean, no one knows for sure. We all, what, we, what we all know for sure is that Pilate had a chance to do the right thing and let Jesus go. Instead, he chose to save his own life. You remember what Jesus said along these lines? And I'll close with this, Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. Where Jesus said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, those are words that every human being needs to ponder in their heart. What is worth going to hell over? 50, 60, 70 years of money on the earth? If you could have achieve the level of a king of the whole earth how long can you enjoy it again less than a hundred years no doubt is is it worth trading your eternity for a few years of pleasure on the earth and then spending eternity apart from god in hell apparently there's a lot of folks who think it's worth it because they make that that trade every day but jesus said Nothing is worth your soul. Don't let the devil tell you this world is worth it. Enjoy your, live for the moment. You only get so many moments in this life. And then you're facing a Christless eternity in hell. All right, the trials are over. All that's left now is for the king to be crucified. We'll see that starting next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, especially for sending your Son to die for us that we might be saved. And, Lord Jesus, we know nobody took your life from you by force. You laid it down freely for the sheep. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, that we would live our lives for you, that we would be so humbled by your love for us and what you did that we might be called children of God. That, Lord, every day we would go out into this dark world and not hate those who hate us but love them pray for them and be a light to them we pray lord you continue blessing our studies in your word in the gospel of john we ask all this in jesus precious name amen